This Kendra is where they make their mark. This is the time where you've got to turn the table. You've got to take advantage and ride this wave in this momentum. Look out! Everyone, welcome back to our Coach's Corner special podcast. We've already spoken to the head coach, Adrian Heath, the assistant manager, Ian Fuller, Callum Williams and Kindred D. St. Auburn here with a very special guest indeed, the goalkeeper coach of Minnesota United, Stuart Kerr, joins us. Uh, Stewie, first of all, obviously very, very unprecedented times at the moment. Um, how are you coping? First of all, good afternoon, guys. Hope you are well. Um, pretty much the same as everybody else, I think. Um, I think it's, it's a situation that's pretty much unprecedented. Um, and I think everybody's in the same boat. Obviously, the most important thing at the moment is to stay safe and adhere to the policies that all governments are giving out. So it's just a case of batting down the hatches and try to go on with it the best you can. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because Kendra and I were talking about this a little earlier on. Um, there's lots of time with family, no doubt about it. There's also lots of time on the couch. I, I think several uh, several of, of the streaming services are doing quite well for themselves at the moment. How have you been passing the time? What have you been watching, for example? Well, pretty much the same as you guys, probably. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty much, I love all the sporting things. Uh, I love, I mean, obviously, Sunderland till I die. Come on there. So that was, that, that broke up about seven, eight hours of the day. So that was really good. <laughs> Uh, I think the all for one things on Amazon. The man, obviously, I've watched the Man City stuff. I think the All Black stuff and the NFL stuff's really good as well. It's quite interesting to try and uh, pick up things like that. Uh, also, as well, watching plenty of players on Y Scout. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, when this things this thing breaks up, you know, and, and things happen, hopefully we'll be in a position to maybe add a couple of players. So you've always got to be looking at that, even though even though we're not out in the training field. It's a case of watching as many players as you can and try to be ready for when this thing stops. Speaking of that, watching the Y Scout and the players, I mean, with your own players, how have you been able to keep in contact with them? Have you been able to keep in t- contact with Minnesota United? And do you have any thoughts on their um, internet forays right now as like Tyler <laughs> Miller's rendition of Rambo? <laughs> I've seen Tyler's Rambo rendition yesterday. I think it looked quite good, actually. He's looking good. That's, that's quite good. Um, obviously, it's a case of just keeping in touch here and there. Um, I mean, I think uh, Josh and Stacey, you know, the medical and sports science staff are doing a fantastic job. He's setting up the, the programmes and stuff like that. I think for the coaches, it's very difficult because, obviously, we're not doing any technical stuff. Um, I think the coaches at this club are very much the face-to-face people. I like working with the players, so I think that's very difficult. But I mean, with the group of players we have, I mean, we don't have any worries about them because I think they've shown since since preseason started that they'll do anything we tell them. So it's just a case of getting through this, and then hopefully when we come back, we're ready and we're ready to go. So let's get on to Stuart Kerr, the player, shall we? Um, to my understanding, Siri, that there's no such thing as a as a former Celt. Ten years <laughs> at Celtic. How proud of that are you? Yeah, very proud. Uh, I mean, I joined Celtic when I was 16 years of age. So, I mean, it was a case of coming through that time where it was like, it was, I mean, obviously it's worldwide, the club, everybody knows it. I mean, even when you go to the States or you go anywhere else, you'll always see someone with a Celtic top on. Um, And I think, to be fair, that's instilled in you when you first go into the club. I think I was very lucky in the fact that Billy McNeil, who just passed away not long ago, um, he was my first manager and he was obviously the guy that lifted the European Cup he was the first British player captain to ever lift the European Cup so he was a manager and he, he, he quickly let you know what it meant to be a Celtic player um, and I think I mean even when you play for the youth team reserve team you can't lose a game I mean so you know so you obviously know then what it's like for the first team so for me I'm very proud of it and I was, I was very lucky to spend 10 years there well, maybe I shouldn't even ask this question then. Was was soccer your first and only love? I mean, is is there any other option when you're growing up in Scotland and, and you have Celtic right there in your in your backyard? Yeah, I think Kendra, I think it's very much so in Scotland. Um, I mean, I think it I mean obviously the Celtic and Rangers in the west of Scotland, mm-hmm. especially. The newspapers is front page news, Celtic and Rangers obviously with a Protestant Catholic dynamic, which isn't good at the best of times, but obviously it helps survival goal, but um, 
I think for when you're a young boy growing up in Scotland, to your very early age, that you're playing with a ball outside. And that's all we did when we were growing up. I mean, your mum has to, mum had to used to have to shout you in at like 10 o'clock at night, <laughs> and the lights would come on, and yeah, they'd bring you in at night. But I think for a very early age, everybody in the west of Scotland especially wanted to be a footballer. Mm. I, uh, I spoke to a former Celtic player and uh, an old teammate of yours. I won't embarrass him by, uh, by saying... I was going to say, you're not naming names here, what? <laughs> <laughs> I won't embarrass him. Um, he said, Stewie, that he didn't quite realise how big Celtic Football Club is. And, and it, he didn't really get an appreciation until he went there. But he said that, that it was different with you. You understood. Mm-hmm. Why did you understand what it meant to be a Celtic player? I think it was because, I mean, we, I mean, we were quite lucky in the fact that, I mean, when we were young boys at, at Celtic, the youth team, we would, we would go and play like testimonial matches all over the country against like semi-pro teams and, and like, like testimonial games for guys that were coming to the end of their career. And I think even then, you could see that, I mean, the stands were packed even for like a, a youth team from Celtic. And you could see good or bad, the reactions it was provoking on the stands, you know. So you, you quickly realised that, that when you played for Celtic, losing wasn't an option. You know, I mean, I mean, we would go into like testimonial games, no points on the line, nothing. And we would lose a game. We'd lose the game or even draw the game. Sometimes when we even won the game, we would come in after the game. And Bobby Lennox, who was a reserve team manager, who was one of the Lisbon Lions as well, won the European Cup, he would, he would tear strips off you. And he would let you know what it's all about. It's, it's not good enough that if you want to be a Celtic player, if you want to go on the first team and play in front of 60,000 people, then you've got to realise you've got a standard. You've got to keep to that standard. And then he would bring you in in the Monday morning, you'd be cleaning boots at six in the morning before the first team came in. So you didn't want to lose too many games. Yeah. Speaking of that pressure real quick, I mean, what's that like as a 16-year-old, as a 17-year-old, not just playing in that league and playing for that team, but as the goalkeeper? I mean, sometimes the game can live and die with you in, in that position. What was that like at that age with that kind of pressure? Oh, I think definitely. I mean, you've always got that in your mind as a goalkeeper, unfortunately. You're only one second away from disaster. You can play brilliant for 89 and a half minutes and then one moment it's disaster time. Um, I think for Celtic as well, because in Scotland, we would dominate a lot of the games. I mean, we would probably have those days maybe 60, 70% possession and dominate the games. You had to be really strong mentally. You had to be switched on at all times. And, and, and I was quite lucky. Like, my first goalkeeping coach at Celtic was, was Packy Bonner, who played for like, Republic Ireland and World Cups and European Championships and stuff like that. And he played over 500 games for Celtic. So he instilled that in me, where, I mean, you could be doing nothing for 20, 25 minutes in the game then all of a sudden you're going to be judged in the one save you're going to have to make. So especially with a club like Celtic, you didn't want to be the guy that came in the dressing room after the game and make a mistake and you've got to put your hand up in front of your teammates and then obviously face your parents and face everything that goes with it, you know? So you wanted to keep on the ball. Yeah. Let's go back to the start of your Celtic career, Stewie, because um, you had to wait for your chance. Yeah. You were second choice for, for a couple of years. How strong... Uh, psychologically, do you have to be as, as a second choice goalkeeper? I think you have to be very, very. You have to be very strong. I mean, I think if you look at even the top goalkeepers all over the world, there's probably Iker Casillas and Gigi Buffon, who are probably the two guys who have came in from a very, very early age. I'm talking about 17, 18, and came in there and played straight away. So, as a young goalkeeper, it's obviously a test in time. But if you use it properly. If you're working with really good goalkeepers and you have a good coach around you, then when you get a chance to go in, you'll be prepared. You know, I think I think that's a big, big thing. I mean, I, as I said before, I was very lucky to work with, with, with Packy Bonner. And also Joe Corrigan, former England goalkeeper, was one of my coaches at Celtic as well. He would come in twice a week at that time. And he was a guy who played for Man City for many years and played for England. So he would just keep on at me all the time. Just be ready. Be ready when the chance comes because you never know you never know when that chance comes. And, and sometimes the time comes, the chance will come when you've switched off. And then especially at a club like Celtic, a big club who can go and spend money on a goalkeeper, you may never get that chance again. Do you have a fondest memory of that time? I mean, we could probably pick one from every phase and aspect of career as a player and a coach, but do you have a, a fondest memory or a funny story that people would be kind of shocked to hear from your experience? 
for me, I mean, for me, the, big, the biggest thing for me was, was the Celtic was, was just the, the demand. It was just the actual demand. I mean, it was like, I mean, as I said before, sometimes you, you would actually win a game. And I'm talking about youth team, reserve teams. We actually won the reserve team league uh, title at Ibrox and there was 36,000 people at the game <laughs> for a reserve team game. Wow. It was a game where Duncan Ferguson played in because it was his it was his comeback. He was coming back to play. So there was 36,000 fans at um, Ibrox. But we came in, we won that game. And I'll never forget it. Tommy Burns was the manager at the time, the first team manager. And he came in and we were celebrating, thinking it's great and all that. And he came in and he absolutely tore strips off us. And he released four players on the spot in the dressing room. Because <laughs> they'll never be Celtic players. And it's no good enough. So that was a quick realisation. If you think you're doing well, <laughs> it can be over. So that was a bit of a wake-up call for me. Yeah. You, you did get your chance in 1996, Stewie. Um, a game between Celtic and, and Motherwell. And, and it was an important game as well. I think Celtic yeah. were trailing Rangers by about four or five points at that stage. Uh, Gordon Marshall came out yeah. and made a rather rash challenge and was sent off. And on comes Stewie Kerr for a debut. What was going through your mind at that stage, knowing that potentially this is your big opportunity? Panic, first, <laughs> first and foremost, because as, as I said before, it's one of those ones where it, it, was, it was like 60,000 game, important game, but also there was like 12 minutes to go. And at that time as well, it was very rare actually for a goalkeeper to be on the bench mm. because you, you only had like, you only had uh, three subs, mm. but you could use three outfield subs. So this was one of the times because I had a really good week in training. And because at the time, if you were on the bench, you got the win bonus. So Tommy Burns said, right, OK, we'll put you on the bench because I think you deserve it. And his fate had it, 12 minutes to go, Gordon Marshall comes out. And he actually, it was Lee McCulloch, actually, who wanted to play for Rangers in Wigan. And we brought him down. And then I quickly realised, I seen the red card coming out. And I was on. And it was like, you try to get your, I mean, for a goalkeeper, you're, you're not really used to coming on as a sub. So I was just trying to get my, my shin pads ready and my gloves ready and stuff like that. But the quick realisation was it was a free kick outside the box. So I had to quickly go on with that. And to be fair, I actually, I actually made a good save for the free kick. So that's certainly down quite, uh, quite well. And then, to be fair, the last 10 minutes was like a blur. And uh, <laughs> they scored in the 93rd minute. It was actually Pierre Van Hoydel. Scored a, a header in the 93rd minute. So we won the game 1-0. So that was a special day, obviously. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to Pierre van Hooydonk at, at some stage. Before we do, though, I do want to talk about Henrik Larsson. We can't do one of these without asking you about the big Swede. 97-98 um, season was when he arrived, to, to my knowledge. That was also the first league title and, and league cup uh, for Celtic, What was you were there as well. That must have been a fabulous campaign. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, it was, a, it was a bit of a frustrating campaign for me personally because... I played in '96. Uh, I played the whole season '96, '97. Played in some old firm games and stuff like that. Um, but in pre-season in Dublin, I actually tore my cruciate knee ligament. So I was out. And Vim Janssen, who just came in as manager at that time, Dutch coach, who played played in two World Cup finals for Holland, really top guy. He came in, so and he knew obviously knew Henrik Larsson from Feyenoord because he was a technical director. And I think we actually managed to get him for like 600,000 because he had a clause in his contract. Yep. That there was a certain window. And because Vim was at Feyenoord and he knew the clause, he could get him. So when Henrik first came in, it was like, to be honest, it, it didn't seem as if he was anything special. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, the first, like, first couple of weeks, he'd been injured a bit and he came in and he was a bit off the pace. But then as, as soon as he got to the pace, then you could see quite quickly. I mean the guy, the guy's. I mean the guy's talent was incredible, but the biggest thing for me was was his approach to the game. I mean he was so mentally tough, so mentally tough. The way he approached his fitness work, but mentally incredible. In training every day, it was the same standard every single day, and he would keep people around him in the same standard. If you were playing in his uh, side in a five-a-side game, oh my God, you had to be really on the ball because you knew you were getting off Henrik Larsson. And that, to me, was like his, his biggest trait. And obviously, he went on when he left Celtic. He went to Barcelona. And then he went to Man United when he was like 38, 39. Yeah. Going back to that physically and mentally, he just prepared himself so well for the games. Yeah, absolutely uh, wonderful centre-forwards. Um, let's go forward a couple of years then to the 99-2000 season. 
because I've always wanted to ask you this. Everybody knows John Barnes, the character. <laughs> what was he like as a manager? Because he was then obviously replaced by, by Kenny Dalgleish. Uh, what yeah. was it like to work with, with those two? I think it, for me, it was, a, it was a massive thrill because I was a big Liverpool supporter in the, the middle 80s. I know the gaffer won't like that, but... <laughs> um, but um, especially, I mean, Kendall Gleish, obviously being Scottish, was one of the, I mean, probably the best Scottish player of all time. And John Barnes at that time, for me, was like the top three or four players in the world for a spell of about two years. So he came in, Kenny was actually director of football at the time, so he actually appointed uh, John Barnes. And I just think it was too early for him. I mean, looking back, I mean, it was his first job. I mean, coming in as Celtic manager. I mean, like, at that time as well, Rangers were really spending money, spending a lot of money. Um, and he came in, and I think he, he actually, I think he underestimated the task. I think he didn't disrespect the league, but under, underestimated teams like Hearts and Hibs and the two Dundee teams and stuff like that. I think I actually did a press conference one time where we were playing like Dundee United and he just kept referring to Dundee United as Dundee. Oh. And you know, and you know what that's like. That, really <laughs> that, made, that, that made like back, that made like back page news. And so then there was a target on his back. I think as well, he, he, he was, I mean, he was a really nice guy, to be fair, really nice guy, knowledgeable about the game, but he really had strong characters in that dressing room as well. Guys like Craig Budley. They guys like Henry Glasson, Mark Viduka, Matt Reaper, these guys, Paul Lambert, guys who have Alan Stubbs, guys who have actually went on and been managers in their own rights. So I think he tried to come in at the start and be too hard on the senior players. And I think it backfired because I think they went against them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned it briefly. I've got to ask you, old firm games, I, I, I don't suspect there's anything like them, is there? And, and particularly playing in them. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, the build-up starts. I mean, it's what the whole country's talking about for the whole week. I mean, my first old firm game, I'll never forget it. It was just after Euro 96. I played three games for the first team. I came in and I played three games and it was my first old firm game. At this time, to be fair as well, Scottish football was spending the same money as the English teams because they were getting the same Sky TV money. Right. So we, we had guys like uh, Paolo De Canio, Andreas Tom, Pierre Van Hoydong, stuff like that. Rangers, the guys like Paul Gascoigne, Brian Loudrop, all these guys in their team, and they were just coming off Euro 96. So my first old firm came, never forget it, hadn't even touched the ball, and we were 1-0 down. Brian Loudrop scored after eight, nine minutes, so I'll never forget that. That was a bit of an eye-opener. Um, then you get through it, but, in, but then in the second half, actually, Brian Loudrop goes through. I bring him down, so it's a penalty kick. Mm. I'm thinking to myself, oh... Can just see the papers, the headline in the morning. You know, I've, I've just get in the team, and of course, the game in the old firm game. Luckily enough, Paul Gascoigne went up. And to be fair, in those days, you never had like wide scout or anything like that. <laughs> I managed to see a couple of Paul Gascoigne's penalties in Euro '96 because England had a couple of shootouts against Germany and Spain, and he'd went the same way. So I'd sort of clocked that. So luckily enough, Paul Gascoigne goes up, and I go the right way, and I save the penalty. So my first old firm game, I saved the penalty to Paul Gascoigne. And I'll just remember, I just remember the crowd because it was like the atmosphere, the noise when I saved that penalty. It was just absolutely incredible. Like it was just, it was, it was something you'll never ever forget. You know, it's something you wish you could actually like bottle up. You know, because it's like it's it goes so quick in those games. You know. Mm -hmm. What 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 could you compare that kind of pressure to? You talk about these games. You talk about the people. You talk about the pressure that other players are putting on other players and the intensity of these rivalries, the intensity of the league to people. Is it hard to sometimes get people to comprehend that kind of pressure here in this country? Yeah. yeah I think, I think especially with the Celtic Rangers one, because it's like, because it has a, a Catholic Protestant thing, mm -hmm. it's not like the normal. Uh, it's deeper. Pretty, it's deeper. It's very deep. It's, it's families. So it's like families are really rightly or wrongly, that's that that's the way it is. So it's like the whole build up to the week and then it's like the whole thing and it's bragging rights. Mm -hmm. And you know when you're playing those games, the biggest thing you 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 could be thinking about before you go into those games is if you don't play well, if you make a mistake, you know this is going to affect your family. Mm. If they go into supermarkets or even yourself goes into supermarkets 
then you know there's going to be somebody there that's going to say something. Hmm. You know, so normal life sort of ceases to exist. Pretty much what we're on at the moment. We would do that if we lost an old firm game, we'd be doing that for two, <laughs> three weeks. You know, it was, it, was, it was incredible. And I think that was the, that was the beauty of the game because the, the, the rewards were so high. But if you lost the game, then oh, it, was, it was horrific. A few more before we take a short break here, Stewie. I know you had a, a loan spell at Brighton when you were young, but, but in 2001, there came a permanent move to Wigan. How did you deal with that from an emotional standpoint, leaving Celtic? Well, I mean, obviously, playing with Celtic for 10 years, I mean, I knew the club inside and out, and I loved being at the club. But at that time then, even, I mean, my last two years at Celtic, I was really struggling with my back, back injury. I was really struggling with that. So I was literally only training. I was lucky if I was training once or twice a week. And I, I couldn't really be selected for any games because if you're only training once or twice a week at that level, then you ain't going to be fit enough. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite clear. So, I mean, Wigan at that time were just really starting to build into the team because at that time they were in League One, but they were spending they were spending at least championship money. They were bringing guys in like Nathan Ellington, Jason Roberts, Lee McCulloch, guys like this. So they were building for that team that got to the Premiership. I mean, it was actually it was actually like a favour. Celtic did me a favour actually because. I think if they would actually showed up my proper medical records, and I don't think the news would have went through. <laughs> I went to Wigan. It was, I just wasn't the same guy. My heart wasn't in the game because I wasn't fit enough. I knew I couldn't get back to the level that I'd been at. And at that time, it was, it was, it was just, it was like a, a snowball effect. I was falling out of love with the game, and because I couldn't do it properly, and also I knew the end was coming, and I knew it was coming very quickly. Yeah, and, and for those that don't know, you, you were forced to retire in, in your, your late 20s, 27, I believe. How did the back injury occur? And, and you mentioned it briefly there, Stewie, as the years went on, you could feel it getting worse. Did, did you know it was, it was time to... to yeah, I get, told, I get told from probably the age of 23 that I was going to be in trouble. Mm. I probably had about another three, four years left in the game maximum. And this was even like only training twice a week. So you can imagine it was a very bit of pill to swallow, you know. Um, and I think when it, when, it, when it actually, I mean, the way it came about was it was just actually wear and tear. It's like being a goalkeeper, obviously, you're, you're obviously diving around. And in those days, you never had the, the, the plush uh, grass pitches or the nice uh, 5G AstroTurf pitches. I mean, we were training on like uh, ash pitches and really hard AstroTurf pitches. And if you're a goalkeeper that time and you were diving around, then you were going to pick up some some damage. So obviously my discs were just, I mean, I had two operations to remove two discs, L3 and L4. And it was just, it was getting to the stage where when I was doing like in any sort of goalkeeping work at all, I was waking up the next day and I was, you know, I was in, I was in real pain. I was in real pain. So it was just obviously a case of, I mean, I went to about six different consultants, doctors, really good guys in the field. And they all come up with the same thing. They say, look, if you keep this going, then you're going to be in trouble in later years. So it was a sensible option to retire at that time. I was just going to say, I think my last question just on that is, you had been told since 20 or 24-ish that this would be the case in a few years. But then how, how difficult emotionally is that when the time actually comes? I mean, this is something you devoted pretty much every second of your life to, you know, transitioning and just the actual mental makeup of coming to grips with that yeah I mean it's obviously very very difficult because no matter what people tell you you still have in your mind you think you're going to be okay you know so so that that, that was the case with that but it was it was it came I mean I actually made the decision in conjunction with the consultants I, I could maybe I kept going for another year but it really wasn't worth it it really wasn't and I was only going to do myself a, a, a lot more damage um, I think the mental aspect, mental aspect of it was more difficult coming to terms because we know as, as athletes it's, or whatever you do and, and work, you're so used to having a routine mm -hmm. and, and you'll be doing something your whole life then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you don't have to do it. You know, and you, I mean, and, and in Scotland as well, I mean, I, I only had, a, I didn't have any university qualifications or anything like that. So all of a sudden you wake up and you think, oh my goodness, I've got to go into the real world here. 
and you've also got a family to look after, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, it was a pretty frightening time. Well, the world lost a player, but they also gained a coach, which we'll talk about next on Coach's Corner. Welcome back to the Coach's Corner podcast. Callum Williams and Kendra D. St. Orbit here with our special guest today, goalkeeper coach of Minnesota United, Stuart Kerr. Stewie, we've spoken about your fabulous playing career. Now let's move on to the coaching side of it. And you got your first gig in Scotland at Airdrie United. Now, I don't know if the audience will have heard of Airdrie United, <laughs> a lower league team in Scotland. So tell us all about Airdrie and what they were at that time and how that gig came about. Well, obviously, when I finished playing, I mean, it took me like, I mean, I didn't have a lot of qualifications outside of football. So I sort of quickly realised that I had to get my badges and start networking in the right areas, to get, to, especially at that time, because football at that time, especially in Scotland, there wasn't really a lot of money going about, so jobs were at a premium. So I was very lucky in the fact that, that Kenny Black, who we played with Hearts, Strangers and Portsmouth, really good player at the time, he was manager of Airdrie, and I had a good relationship with Kenny. So at that time, they were in the Scottish First Division. I mean, Airdrie United is like the, it's like the, the poor relation of Motherwell, I mean, Motherwell's not a big club, but Airdrie's even smaller. Um, and they were a poor relation, obviously, like a part-time club this time. But to be fair, this time the chairman was putting a bit of money in. He was he was making the club go full-time. And Kenny asked me if I wanted to join. I mean, it was for, you know, I forget, my first coaching job, it was for £150 a week, um, which is incredible. But at that time, it was just the opportunity. It was the opportunity, I mean, because you never know what you're going to be as a coach. You come in with all these grand ideas and you think you're going to change everything and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. You quickly realise when you're at a club that has no money and you're sitting in a cramped office all day and, you, and, you're, and you're looking for training pitches everywhere and you're scrimping and saving, you realise that you have to adapt and you have to adapt very quickly. Yeah, and, it, and it, it didn't take long for you to get noticed as well because you were soon in the Scottish Premier League with Motherwell and it gave you an opportunity to work with the likes of John Ruddy and, and Darren Randolph, both who have, who have played in the Premier League a fair bit. Yeah, I was very lucky. As I said, I had a, a fantastic ground in Airdrie because I really learned about the work ethic. I realised it was quite different from being a player where you'd come in and train and you'd think about yourself and things like that. As a coach, you're in there very early and you leave very late and you're always 24 hours a day, you're always thinking about the game. Um, I was very lucky... We did okay, Airdrie, that year. We actually we won the Scottish Challenge Cup. It's a lower league cup. Um, my goalkeepers did quite well. And then, actually, the job came up with Motherwell. Um, the goalkeeping coach was actually leaving to go to Aberdeen with Matt McGee, Colin Meldrum. And um, Jim Gannon was the manager at the time, who used to be a Stockport manager. Mm -hmm. For people who might know, he's a pretty complex character. Mm -hmm. um, so I went in and I met Jim, got the call, went in and met Jim. And to be fair, at that time, there was like goalkeeping coaches who were interviewing for the job who had far more qualifications on and off the pitch than me, guys like Jim Layton and Gordon Marshall, who was with me at Celtic. Um, so I didn't expect to get the job, but I had a good time with, with Jim. I went in and uh, I worked with John Ruddy for, he was a goalkeeper at the time, worked with him for three days and I managed to get the job. So it was a big, you mean, it was a fantastic time, very early in my coaching career at that time, to be fair. Um, and also to be working with John Ruddy. I mean, at that time, John was, at that time, he was fourth choice at Everton, and he was on loan to us, and Everton were looking to release him at that time, really, the year left in his contract. So he came to us, and, I mean, you know, you can see by the stature of him, and he's, he's such a good goalkeeper, and he's turned out to be that. At that time, his confidence was down, so we managed to get him going. But the biggest thing, funny story that came up in that was, it was actually... His loan was actually up on December 31st. So, and actually Jim Gannon left and Craig Brown had come in as a manager, who Scottish manager and, uh, and Archie Knox, who was at Manchester United with Sir Alex Ferguson and Rangers with Walter Smith, assistant manager. They came in as a management pair and they were fantastic. But, um, John Ruddy, was at, his loan was up, so we wanted to extend it. Everton were quite willing to extend it. Um, but John's wife didn't want to stay in Scotland. 
So we had this we had this problem where New Year's Eve, hug my name in Scotland, everybody's dying to go out and get a drink and stuff like that. Me and Craig Brown went to his apartment in Hamilton and we had to, we had to sit with his wife and him for two for two hours on New Year's Eve. Never forget it, from seven o'clock to nine o'clock to try and, not to persuade him because he was quite happy, but to persuade his, his wife, Laura, to stay in Scotland. And um, luckily enough, we managed to do it and we did it. And he went on, he had a fantastic year that year. We actually got to like the, we got to League Cup semi-final, qualified for Europe, get in the top six. And he actually, on the, on, on the back of that year, he actually got a move to Norwich City with Paul Lambert, who, who I played with at Celtic. And then the, he went on through there and had a fantastic career. But moving forward with that, John Ruddy left. So we're thinking, how are we going to replace this guy? He's goalkeeper a year in Scotland. He's just went for half a million pounds to Norwich. Um, sure enough, a guy called Darren Randolph had just been released, believe it or not, by Charlton. Released. So we, man- we managed to bring him in. Came in, actually, I mean, for a club like Motherwell, we gave him a really decent salary, three-year deal. So we had to get it right. Came in and we were just bewildered by the fact that Charlton let him go for nothing. Because he came in straight away. We were thinking, how are we going to replace John Ruddy? He's came in absolutely fantastic. And then he's moved on from Motherwell and he's went on from there. And he's had a fantastic career, especially with Republic Island as well. Going back to the start of that coaching position, what do you think it is? Why do you think you got the position over maybe some some that were more qualified in your words than you were? I mean, what separates you, you think, as a goalkeeping coach, even at that young age and maybe that you've carried kind of through your career, some certain characteristics that might be, you know, you kind of hang your hat on? I think it's probably a desire because I don't think I achieved what I should have achieved as a player. Um, so I don't like to see anybody wasting their talent. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, and I'm a great believer in that. Um, and the, the, the goalkeepers I worked with at Motherwell were prime examples because John Ruddy was getting to the stage where he was 22 and, and he was like that. Teams were thinking, is he going to do it? Mm-hmm. So we managed to get him. And, and the same thing with Dan Randolph as well. I think with goalkeeping coaching, I think it's very, very important to establish personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a different, totally different um, coaching position actually to the outfield coaches mm-hmm. because I mean when you've played the position you know what it's like to be a goalkeeper sometimes mm-hmm. outfield coaches don't they don't mm-hmm. say oh you should save that but you know, mm-hmm. we can say well this happened this happened and stuff like that so I think for me it's about all establishing uh, personal relationships with the goalkeepers and I think especially in the early days and hopefully now, just now as well that sort of separates me a little bit from other goalkeeping coaches because I'm a great believer that a lot of goalkeeping coaches, you can, you can go on YouTube now have a look at drills for goalkeeper coaches. And, like, if you've got an idea of the game and you know how to play the game, you can go on now and, and do drills and stuff like that. But for me, it's about your goalkeepers being able to trust you. And mm-hmm. I'd like to think at every club I've been at that every goalkeeper's been able to trust me and I've made them better. Mm-hmm. As a coach, Stewie, what differences have you noticed over the course of the last 10 years or so in terms of being a goalkeeper, I think it's safe to say nowadays a modern-day goalkeeper is expected to have the ball on his feet a lot more and yeah. be able to do something with it. But there's a lot more to it now in terms of goalkeeping. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, if you look at like, the drills now you do in goalkeeping, a lot of them now is with the ball at the feet. And I think that's correct because if you look at how the majority of touches now are with the goalkeepers with the ball at the feet. But I'm still a great believer that a goalkeeper's job ultimately is to keep the ball out the back of the net. <laughs> and I think, obviously, with stuff, I mean, you see like goalkeepers like Allison and you see goalkeepers like Ederson, even Manuel Neuer to an extent when he became the sweeper keeper and stuff like that. I think that's great. I really do think that's great. But that's like the 0.001% of goalkeepers. My biggest advice to a goalkeeper who wants to carve a living in the game and make something out of the game is, You've got to keep the ball at the back of the net as well as work on the modern day aspects of the game. Play with the ball at your feet. And the thing is now, the good thing is now, modern day goalkeepers are coming up with now. It's ingrained in them. They have to be good with the ball at their feet. Mm. And they do all that now. Whereas before, it was like, it was very foreign to these goalkeepers. I mean, guys like who came up and the, the rule got introduced when they were 
halfway through their career, they find it very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think with goalkeepers, I think ultimately if the majority of managers, they want somebody who can keep the ball at the back of the net. They can go to bed at night knowing if they're under pressure, this guy can make saves to keep us in the game. Yeah. Um, it all changed for you though, didn't it? In December 2011, and Toronto FC became an option. And you took a leap of faith there, Stewie, because there were several other places you could have gone around the world. Why did you opt for Toronto FC? Well, it's, it's, it's actually a funny story, really, because I was having a great time at Motherwell. Fantastic time. As I said, this was at Craig Brown and Archie Knox were there. But what happened, though, is my wife, Louise, she actually she works in pharmaceuticals. Mm. So she's got a really good job. And she actually got offered a transfer to Toronto, believe it or not. Right. So this was in, this would have been, yeah, it would have been the start of 2011, actually. Start of 2011. So at that time, I was just really getting to grips with my coaching career and stuff like that. So we decided as a family that Louise and the kids would go out for the first six months and I would get another at least six months under my belt to get the, the, the you know, the, the proper experience and stuff like that. And you can say I've done my two full seasons at uh, Motherwell. So I was very, so incredibly, I the goalkeeping coach at Toronto at the time, Mike Toshak, who was a fantastic goalkeeping coach. He was at Portland as well, won the MLS Cup. He was he was goalkeeping coach here at the time, and I had a relationship with him because we because we actually did like with the same golf company, and we also were sharing ideas as well. So he sort of gave me a heads up that he might be leaving. So he got me in contact with Paul Marner. For people who know him, fantastic centre forward, England centre forward, Arsenal and Ipswich. Um, and he got in contact with me. And at that time, it was Paul Manor was director of player development. And Aaron Vinter, Bob DeClerc, who's now at Atlanta, um, they, they were head coach and assistant coach. So I got in contact with those guys. And luckily enough, Tosh was leaving. I got the call to go and meet them. So the only job that I really, like at that time, really, really, really wanted, as I said, I'd interest be elsewhere. I'd interest in Australia. I'd interest in England. I had the opportunity to go to Norwich at the time. Paul Lambert wanted to take me to, to England and Norwich. Um, but I went over and I met these guys. So it just worked out fantastically well. And obviously I knew MLS was thriving. I kept up to date with it. So I knew what was going on. So I went out there and met Paul Marner, Aaron Vinter. And luckily enough, they offered me the job. And it was, as I say, it, was, it turned out to be a really good decision. It presented you with the opportunity of, of working with several very good goalkeepers. I know you had a, a, a great relationship and, and still do to this day with Joe Bendick. But there was a short spell just before the World Cup in 2014 when Julio Cesar, the Brazilian number one goalkeeper at the time, came on board. What an opportunity that must have been, Stu. Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible because... It was going to be the, the, this was in, we were in pre-season, we were actually in Florida at the time. And Ryan Nelson, who was the head coach at Toronto at the time, actually went like that and says, listen, Julio Cesare says he's going to be Brazil's number one goalkeeper, but Scalari needs him to be playing games before he goes there. So Ryan actually knew Kia Jaborshi, who was actually Julio Cesare's agent. Um, so he got the call and he asked if Julio could come and play for Toronto. And I think for the club at that time, I mean, it was it was a great PR move because Julio was obviously going to be playing in the World Cup for Brazil in Brazil. You know, he's going to Brazil, number, possibly a chance of winning the, the World Cup. So for us, it was fantastic. We brought him on. And as I say, it was just an absolute delight to work with this guy. I mean, you talk about a guy who's done everything. He's, he's been World Goalkeeper of the Year. He's won the Champions League, World Club Championship, Copa Americas with Brazil, done everything. And he was the most humble guy the most humble guy you could ever meet. And I think, you talk about Joe Bendick, I think for Joe Bendick, it was an unbelievable experience working with a guy who was going in to play at the highest level, the 2014 World Cup, going to go in, prepare myself, what he was going to do. And I think that that's something that will stay with me for the rest of my career, being able to prepare him for that World Cup. You speak of that experience with him and anything that you learn from top level goalkeepers that maybe you as a coach can kind of hang your hat out like that. You are like, wow, I didn't think of it that way. I mean, do you feel like you learn from the players as much as they learn from you? How do you kind of view that relationship with each different goalkeeper that you work with? 
Well, I, think, I think we're all learning every day. I think every goalkeeper is different. You can't have a one-size-fits-all attitude to training with the goalkeepers. What suits one goalkeeper won't suit another goalkeeper. But I think it all comes down to one thing, and I think the thing that Julio was really good at, he had his strengths and his weaknesses, but he was very good at the fundamentals. I think as a goalkeeper, if you don't have those basic fundamentals down, if you don't have that base, you're going to really struggle. And it's amazing for me, goalkeeping, the higher level you go, mm-hmm. I think the more simpler it gets. Mm-hmm. I think what you have, I think in North America at the moment, I think you have a lot of goalkeeper coaches who want to be assistant coaches mm-hmm. and they don't really spend enough time in the job they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's resulted in, if you look at North America, North America should be producing young goalkeepers left, right and centre mm-hmm. because of the characteristics they have with basketball, NFL, they're always using their hands. They're always, you know, they're good athletes. And all they need is to be, be taught the fundamentals. And I think that's been a thing that Julio really taught me was, and it's a guy who'd done it all. If you don't have the fundamentals, you won't survive in the game. Julio Cesar was extremely complimentary of you after the spell at Toronto FC. I think it, it's safe to say, Stu, you were receiving some, some global acclaim and admiration at that stage. But that's nothing new to you. It's something that has been consistent throughout your coaching career, which has brought a lot of attention on you. And I know what it has done is it's meant there's been plenty of offers in front of you. Also, as recently as as a couple of, of months ago, have you ever been tempted to to perhaps try something else elsewhere? Well, I think obviously as a as a coach, and even it's the same as a player. I think you always want to test yourself. Um, I think you're always you're you're really looking to go push yourself to the highest level, um, and I think, but also as well, I think that there comes a time where you're with a club and you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. You feel comfortable with the staff you have around you. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable in saying this: that the staff we have at Minnesota, starting all the way from the gaffer all the way down, I think everybody knows what their jobs are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very, very important when you come into modern day football now. I think it's, um, I think things get complicated unnecessarily at times. But I think we our staff and our whole football department, to be fair, I think you're allowed to go on with your job. Also, there comes times where you think, would it be good here? Would it be good there? But at the moment, as it stands, I'm, I'm very happy at Minnesota United. Mm. Well, you mentioned Gaffer, Adrian Heath. Uh, you had an opportunity to go to Orlando and work with him for the first time in 2015. You also crossed paths with Mark Watson and Ian Fuller. Um, why Orlando? What was the draw? Did, did Adrian Heath have anything to do with that? Well, to be fair, I, I knew Adrian uh, a few years before it because Adrian, when he was with Orlando, when they were in the USL, Paul Manor was head coach at Toronto mm-hmm. and he offered Adrian the assistant manager's job at Toronto with a view to becoming the head coach. Yes. So Adrian actually came up for a few days and I was the goalkeeping coach at Toronto at the time. So I got to know Adrian pretty well over a four or five day period and we sort of gelled. We sort of had the same views on the game. Uh, we, under, we understood where everybody was coming from. Um, and I think from there, when 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 I got fired at Toronto, um, the opportunity came up with Orlando. And at that time, I mean, the gaffer was doing unbelievable things at that time with Orlando. Uh, I mean, you looked at the first game, 62,000, stuff like that. And in the first season, they had a fantastic season. I mean, I think it's still to this day one of the best expansion seasons that anybody's ever had. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. And then, luckily, I came in that year, I got a call from Adrian. He asked me to come on board. And it's, and actually, we were doing well that season. We were actually, Adrian got fired in July. We were like three, four points outside the playoff spots. You know, and we'd, we'd lost one game in nine. So it was like, it was a strange situation. But as I said, it was a fantastic uh, experience in Orlando. But it was a little bit better at the end because Adrian got let go. When you had your time with Adrian in Orlando City, was there anything in particular that, you know, maybe you, you, you met him in Toronto, you experienced four or five days with him, but then seeing him in action, what is it that's unique or special about what he does and, and the way he maybe works with the players or what he communicates. or And even as a goalkeeping coach, you might have a different opinion than if we asked another field coach what they think of Adrian Heath as a coach. What is your perspective of him as a coach? What makes him special? 
I think his passion for the game. I think his infections. I, I don't think I've ever seen the guy coming in in the morning without a smile. You know, he just loves the game. He, he, lo- he, he loves to be involved in the game. I think another thing, I think there's this misconception about him that, that he, he loves the game and, and stuff like that. But technically and tactically, this guy's been at the highest level as a, as a player and as a coach at the highest level. And I think he's underestimated in, that, in those aspects. I think if you look at, I mean, if you look at the job he did at Orlando from USL days all the way to MLS, he had a fantastic job there. Now you look at the job he's, he's, he's done at Minnesota, both expansion teams. And I think, I mean, he gets the players on side. He's a player's manager, but they also know they can't mess about him. They know that if, if, if they don't do their job properly, you ain't going to play. And I think, he, you know, he, he believes it's, I mean, I believe as well, it's a privilege to be in this position, mm-hmm. to be paid for something you would do for nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think he brings that to work every single day. And I think that does rub off on the players. A couple more before we take another break here on Coach's Corner. Um, the admiration for you continued, Stewie, particularly in North America, and Vancouver Whitecaps poached you. How was that experience in working with Carl Robinson? That was a fantastic experience. Um, as I said, Adrian left Orlando and Jason Christ came in as manager. And to be fair, at the end, actually, they had a really good relationship with, uh, with Jason. But the situation came up with Vancouver and I knew Carol, Carl Robinson. And I had the opportunity to go there. I think Carol's pretty much has got the same attitude as Adrian. They're very, very passionate about the game. It's been their whole lives. And they come in every day and they think it's a privilege to, to be involved in it. I think also as well, I think Vancouver at that time, were, were, I mean, they were doing well. Carol had got them to like a Western Conference semi-final. When I came in, they already got to the Champions League. And it was a beautiful city as well. You know, absolutely one of the best cities in North America. So it was a fantastic opportunity to go there. And it also got me closer back to my family. So mm-hmm. that was um, that was a fantastic opportunity. And it was just, in the end, I think it wasn't, you know, I don't think what happened was, was very fair on Carol and staff because I think Carol did a really good job there. Yeah, absolutely. He was uh, wonderful. Kendra, do you say, Norman, you, you've had an oh, yeah. Vancouver, haven't you, as well? <laughs> yeah, I think every time we hear Vancouver come up, having done the Women's World Cup up there and, and being stationed there for a month, we, we all agree every time we go there for MLS, <laughs> too. It's a place that we could probably all live. We wouldn't mind... Yeah. We wouldn't mind moving there and experiencing it. And I always feel bad for anybody on an MLS team that just visits Vancouver because you only get like 36 hours there. Yeah. I mean, it's – talk about a place to raise your family and experience just a beautiful climate, a beautiful setting, and the people there are amazing. So that's not that's not a bad stop for you on the coaching coaching carousel. No, it was fantastic. I mean, I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. We, 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 we had two really good years there. We got to a, a Western Conference uh, semifinal. Mm-hmm. And we also got to a Champions League semi-final. We played against Tigres in the, the Champions League semi-final. So to go over there, play in front of sixty, be in front of sixty thousand people in Monterey, it was an incredible atmosphere. Incredible just to be involved in that. And as I say, I think it was. I think in the end, it was it was a tough one for Carol to be let go. And uh, I think it was the wrong decision. But it's um, that's that happens in football sometimes. Yeah, I was going to say let's let's just talk about that before we go to break, shall we, Stewie? I know it's it's um, something that that you still are desperately disappointed about how it all ended at Vancouver. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, if you looked at Carroll's record, I mean, he got to the he, he got to the playoffs three out of four years for a club that wasn't really spending big money. You know, he also he won a Canadian Championship, Champions League semi final. Also developed Alfonso Davies. You mm-hmm. know, brought him in. He was, he was one of the first guys and he was getting laughed at at the time when he said that Alfonso Davies' best position will be a left wing back. You know, why are you not playing him higher up the pitch? Because he could have done that and he could have scored a lot more goals for Vancouver, but what he did for the kid was he, he prepared him properly for, for when he went to Bayern Munich because at the highest level, that's going to be his best position. So I think, I mean, we all, we all did a very good job there. Um, Obviously, Carroll's now, he's moved on to the A-League in Australia and he'll do very well there. Martin Pear, who was the assistant manager there, is now on Manchester United staff. He's a first-team coach with Manchester United. And Gordon Forrest is the Dundee United assistant manager. So I think that showed the sort of calibre of staff that was with Vancouver at the time. 
And Vancouver's loss was Minnesota's gain. Next up on Coach's Corner, we'll talk about Stuart Kerr, the goalkeeper coach of Minnesota United. Welcome back to the final segment of our Coach's Corner special. Callum Williams, Kindred East St. Aubyn, alongside Stuart Kerr, the goalkeeping coach of Minnesota United. Stuart, when we last spoke, you just ended your spell at Vancouver Whitecaps. Then you, you, you flirted with the idea of several other options. Ultimately, you decided on Minnesota United. How did that come about? I think uh, the allure of working with Adrian again, uh, Adrian, Mark and Ian, I think that was a, a massive lure for me to come back in. Also MLS, because, I mean, when you're not involved in it, you do miss it. Yeah, I mean, because you miss the buzz of it, you miss everything around it. Um, and also the stuff, I mean, you look to Minnesota. I mean, I'd come up against them a couple of times at Vancouver. And obviously things weren't going too great at that time, but you could see what they were doing. They were building the roster up. They were building up to go to the new stadium. And I think they were, they were getting the right players in at the right time. And, and you could see the way they started last season with a, a few away wins at the start. And then they were keeping that consistency levels. Up and up, I think it was a great opportunity to come in, and I was delighted when I got the call from Adrian uh, to come in and help with the goalkeepers. And from there, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Mm. How difficult is it to step into a situation mid-season? I mean, is that a different challenge? Is it just a new challenge? I mean, what did you make of the, the timing of it and trying to step into a, something that had been at least in the run of play for a season? Well, I think it's, I mean, you, you can look at it two ways. I think you can look at it and think it's going to be difficult. I think it depends on your personality as a coach. I mean, I pride myself and be able to build relationships pretty quickly with the goalkeepers I work with because I've been in their position. And I've been there, I've seen the ups and downs of it, the good and the bad. I've been a number one, I've been a number two, I've been a number three. And now I'm a coach, so I know what they're going through. I know the ups and downs. And I think... If you go in and you be yourself, you don't try and be somebody who you're not, mm -hmm. um, and you keep it simple, which is very, very important, especially when you're coming in mid-season. Because if you go in and you try and change everything mid-season, mm -hmm. it ain't going to work. All you can do is you can try and get them a bit sharper mm -hmm. um, and get them enjoying the training sessions, and hopefully then that translates into the games and then that, that results in good performances. How, how do you do it then, Stewie? How do you ultimately make a goalkeeper more sharper than what they already are? I think it's the intensity in training. I think, um, especially with older goalkeepers, I, I, I'm a great believer when a goalkeeper gets to the age of, even nowadays, I mean, probably get to the age of 23, 24, you ain't going to change them. They mm. are what they are. You can tweak things here and there. Things come up in their games and weaknesses crop up. But if you can get them mentally sharp, if you can get them physically sharp. And I think it's a demand in the training, putting an intensity level into the training. Trying to it's, it's impossible to replicate a game, but it's trying to replicate these game situations. So things when, if they make a save, they get back up quickly. You know, the, the stand positions, the focus, they, they do it, it's all muscle memory. They do it without even thinking. And I think that comes with the intent. My, my biggest bugbear with goalkeeping coaches is, is like, especially, especially with when you're in a first-team environment, you have a limited time to work with the goalkeepers. You probably have maybe 25, 30 minutes of real quality work, excluding the warm-up. So you have to make the most of that 25, 30 minutes. And you have to get out of that what you can. So I hate to see goalkeepers standing around. I hate to see them. Stand. Even the guys who aren't doing the reps, they've got to be ready to put a rebound in. And they've got to be aware, and all, especially with the young goalkeepers, they've got to be watching the senior goalkeepers work. And then, and then they can take that into their sessions. So I think that's what it is. I think it's mentally being alert. And ultimately, as well, they enjoy the sessions. And I think, I think also as well, you have to, what I'll do is I'll tend to have the goalkeepers, I'll give them what, what I believe they need on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Day before the game, I believe that's the goalkeeper who's playing a uh, game. I believe that he decides what he needs on the Friday because mm -hmm. ultimately he's playing in the game within reason, within reason. He has to do enough, but within reason. If he wants to work on this, he can work on that. 
And I'm a great believer in that. And also the goalkeeper's warm-up. It's what the goalkeeper feels comfortable with. Because these are the guys that are playing. And I want them to be 100% physically, but more importantly, 100% mentally ready to play in the game. So then when you say a lot of goalkeepers by 23, 24, you're not necessarily going to change them, but you're tweaking things. How different is it then working with someone who's a, a veteran like Ovito Minone or Bobby Shuttleworth and Dane St. Clair or now our Fred Emmings, who is extremely young? How do you balance that when you're in the same training session? Tyler Miller now stepping into the fold, who we can call him a veteran, even though he's still pretty young. How do you balance that in the same training session? I think it's... Um... I think you've always, with the goalkeeper who's playing, you have to be wary of the reps he's getting. You have to stagger, stagger your training sessions a bit. I think it was good with the goalkeepers that I've worked with in my career, actually, to be fair, at every club I've been with. We're such a tight-knit a tight knit group that mm-hmm. if we see something in somebody's game, then we'll bring it up. And it's not criticising. It's just trying to help the goalkeeper. Whether it's a Vigo Minoni, who's a 32-year-old guy, whether it's a Fred Emmings, whether it's a Tyler Muller, Dane St. Clair, Greg Ranjitsing, mm-hmm. there's always something that crops up in the game. As I said before, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might, have, I might have shot into a, a goalkeeper, and this goalkeeper might not have the greatest hands in the world, but what he does is he gets the ball out of the danger area, and he does it really well. So some goalkeepers will do it that way, some goalkeepers will do it the other way. But as long as they're effective, as long as they're effective and they're doing it, I don't mind it at all. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is the biggest thing. Even when you... I mean, the goalkeeping's all about decision-making. Mm-hmm. You're coming for through balls, you're coming for crosses. Even shots coming at you now, can you hold it? Is the ball wet? If you spill it, what's the percentages? If it drops, will it go in the back of the net? Or do you make the decision to be pragmatic and get the ball out of the danger area? For me, that's a, that's a massive part, and every goalkeeper's different. You were very, very complimentary of the new goalkeeper, Tyler Miller, during pre-season, Stewie. Um, and you had a a fair role in in getting him into Minnesota United, didn't you? I know conversations were had about a a myriad of of goalkeepers and possibilities, but but you were one to push for Tyler Miller. Why? When his name came up, I mean, I've always, I mean, I knew Tyler pretty well, not personally, but when I was at Vancouver, we would, Tyler was the number two goalkeeper there when he got, when he came from college, he came there, he was the number two goalkeeper. And obviously Vancouver and Seattle, had the Cascadia Cup rivalry and we always came up against them. They were big games. So I sort of knew, I could see him in the warm-ups because I always like to watch goalkeepers' warm-ups and stuff like that when we go and watch Seattle. And I just like to look over them. And actually, because I had, I worked with Stephen Fry for a year at Toronto and I spoke to Stephen about Tyler even before the, the, it came up about, about Minnesota. And he said to me, he says, if this kid gets it right, he says he'll be, he'll be an international goalkeeper. So I kept my eye on him when he was young. I mean, he played for Seattle in the Western Conference final when Stephen Fry was injured against Houston in 2017. Mm. And he was outstanding. He looked so calm and composed. He would only been 23, 22, 23 at that time. They never missed a beat. And then obviously he got picked straight away in the expansion draft with LAFC. And in my opinion, I looked at him to, to, to go to such a big club with such a, a demand on with the players in the club and also with the fans, I think he did an absolutely fantastic job there. Playing under a lot of pressure, probably playing at a time where the manager was maybe not sure about him as the number one goalkeeper. And I think that maybe that, that, was, that maybe played on his mind a little bit because if you're a goalkeeper, you need to know you have the full backing of everybody at the club if you're going to be the number one goalkeeper. But even in those circumstances, I thought he was absolutely outstanding. So when his name came up, I expressed my, my desire to, the, to the, the men in charge that I think we should take him and we should take him and get him very, very quickly. And there were other teams in the league who were, who were in for him. But the good thing from our point of view was Tyler actually wanted to come to Minnesota. He really did. He, he really pushed it through and he wanted to come here because he knew he had an opportunity. He knew he would work with a manager who believed in him and a coaching staff who could make them better. So for us, it was, it was, it was a fantastic acquisition. Uh, quick question for me on just goalkeepers in general. They don't seem ever short of chattiness. <laughs> They're, you know, most of them are talkers, big communicators. They're always the ones who are joking around at the training sessions and, um, you know, have the, the funny comments here and there. 
what is it about the communication that we've talked a lot about the physical play of the goalkeeper and what they're responsible for, but how important do you think communication is with the back line and you throw a new keeper in there, but you maybe have the similar back four from last year, but now you've got a new goalie. How important is the communication and the organizing? I think the communication is a really big thing. I think it's really big because obviously the goalkeeper can see the whole mm-hmm. pitch in front of them um, and you can see and you can move the, the pieces accordingly. But I think the biggest thing for me when a new goalkeeper comes in, and I think Tyler has really showed this, I think players, especially uh, defenders, know very, very quickly mm-hmm. if they have a good goalkeeper behind them. And they know very quickly if they have a calm goalkeeper behind them. Mm-hmm. And I think with Tyler, I think that's one of his biggest strengths for such a young, because he's still only, I think he's turned 27 now, um, but for, for a goalkeeper, he's still very young. I think what he shows is his decision-making. 99 times out of 100, he makes the right decision. Mm-hmm. So, so defenders know his starting position is going to be correct. They know when they get the ball back to him, he knows when to play short, he knows when to clip it, he knows when to go long. His knowledge of the game is really, really good. And I think that's the, that's the thing. You get a lot of goalkeepers who just shout for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. And it can get annoying to defenders at times. It can get really, you know, it's like, but Tyler, when he communicates, he actually gives out good information. And I think the more the more, the, the more time he gets to be here, because we, we've basically said to him, look, we believe in you 100%. Mm-hmm. And we know you're going to be an international goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about making mistakes. Don't worry about it at all. You're going to be the guy and go and enjoy it and be yourself and be a leader on the, pack, on the pitch. I think many people are of the opinion that Minnesota United may very well possess the best number two in the league in Gregory Ranjit Singh. But what about Fred Ennings, Stu? Just turned 16. How good is this kid? I think Fred, Fred's a... I mean, he actually brings a smile on my face when I talk about him because um, he's, such a, he's such a good kid who wants to learn. His appetite for the game... Is fantastic, and he has all the ability in the world. When we when we brought him in, it was I mean it was a big decision because obviously he's Minnesota United's first homegrown player, especially at that age as well because he was fifteen at the time, and especially being a goalkeeper, you know that that doubles it. Um, so when we brought Fred in, and I developed a good relationship with Fred at the end of last season because he was coming in and he was training with us at the end of last season, and I told him the situation if we, if we were going to sign him there were going to be ups and downs in pre-season. Because you forget at times he's, he just turned 16, but we were away for a long time in pre-season. And at the start of pre-season, unbelievable. He was he was flying. He was, he was, you know, doing really well. And, you know, every day did not look out of place. Then, as we knew what would happen, he had a little bit of a dip, which is normal, which is normal. I think mentally, when you're a goalkeeper at that age, the realisation of knowing you have to do this every single day. Mm-hmm. For the first two weeks, everything's new and exciting. Then you realise, oh, oh my goodness, I have to do this every single day and keep that standard, especially when you're working with a club, with, with the, goal, the standard of goalkeepers every single day that we have to keep that standard up is very, very difficult. So I had a good chat with him. The manager's been absolutely fantastic with him. We, we spell him in and out at times at the training sessions, mm-hmm. give him his break when he needs it. And now he's got back over that hump. And just before we actually left, because of the, the, the situation, he was coming back to what he was at pre-season again. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the biggest thing for me I could say with Fred is, the biggest compliment I can give him is, he hasn't looked out of place. Mm-hmm. Which, believe me, when you're, when you're a young goalkeeper playing at this level, it'd be very, very easy to, to, to look out of place. And the players respect him as a player which not just because he's a young kid, but they actually respect him as a goalkeeper, which I think is is massive. You mentioned earlier on about uh, the standard being set amongst the goalkeepers, but but I get the feeling, Stewie, we're in the fortunate situation that, that Kendra and I get to watch training most days. Mm-hmm. It seems as though the standard has been set across the entirety of the roster. How excited are you once we resume normality? Are you positive about this group of players? I think a lot of people have said this is perhaps the best group Minnesota United have ever had. Yeah, I'm very positive. I mean, I think you've seen it before before the shutdown that, I mean, <laughs> I've seen it after we won the two games that I heard people saying, oh, it was an easy start. 
<laughs> the first two games were going to be an easy start. Well, Portland away and San Jose away, I don't think they uh, two easy games, especially Portland away. They've never lost a home opener. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, I think what we've shown in this, in, in the first two games, is an amazing mental strength. I think, I mean, the Portland game, first half, we didn't play particularly too well, but we hung in the game and we kept ourselves in the game. And I think in this league, you have to have that capacity away from home. We've got the quality to score the goals, but I think what we have is we have a resiliency in the team. If you look at the spine of the team, you look at the guys, you look at Tyler, you look at the two centre-backs, you look at the midfielders, you look at the strikers, and then augment that with the, 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 the players who can provide that bit of quality, then I think we have a real chance. And in the Portland game, I think we showed fantastic resiliency and we took the chances when they came. I think the San Jose game, I think we showed what we could do going forward. You know, I think we really punished them. I think at times they were at sixes and sevens. They 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 really did not know how to handle us. And going back to the manager, I think that shows that shows fantastic tactical acumen because we knew in the first game, Portland big crowd are going to come out. We could catch them in the counter attack if we if we defend well. The second game we could we could probably create more in the second game because obviously the way San Jose played, and I think it showed up in the first two games what we can be when we come back, and hopefully that continues. Speaking of coming back, you know, just signed a new deal here with Minnesota, and you've had a few really good stops along MLS and other places. How happy are you here in Minnesota? Oh, very happy. Very happy. I love, I mean, I love I, I love coming into work every single day. I love, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's fantastic. Great set of players, great set of coaching staff, fantastic football department, and everybody at the club. You know, everybody at the club has been so welcome to me when, when I've came in, because obviously I came in halfway through the season last season, which can be awkward. Mm-hmm. But everybody was fantastic towards me and, and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think there's a real there's a real togetherness about the mm-hmm. club. I think everybody's pulling in the in the same direction. And I think with what we've done, I mean you look at the stadium, you look at the fans, you look at everything. I think if we can keep on the right path, I think um, we keep the players on the right way. I think we can do big things here. I think I really do think we can do big things, but we're also realistic as well. We know when you win the first two games, people's expectations go sky high. Mm. We don't get fooled with that because we know in football that you lose a couple of games there and all of a sudden you're not a good team. Two weeks ago, you were a fantastic team. If you come back and you lose a game straight away, then you're a bad team. Mm-hmm. So you've got to temper that. But I think if we keep on the same path, we'll do okay. Jukka, pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. Before we let you go, because I know you've got some stuff to watch on the couch, <laughs> um, just a message to the fans, if you would. I think uh, first and foremost is stay safe. Just listen to what what the, the proper people, the, the doctors and everyone and the experts are saying. Stay, stay safe as much as you can and just be, be ready for when we come back because we're going to need, we're going to need this, the fans of this club. I think last year it showed up. For me, it was the best atmosphere in the MLS. And I think when it comes back, I mean, hopefully when this all clears, everybody's back in the stadium, it will be a special day. So just everybody stay safe until then and uh, hope to see you soon.